Welcome to Who Runs This Park, a podcast where you are invited into the hearts and stories of those who have committed their careers to the protection and preservation of our great national parks. Who Runs This Park aims to be a catalyst for inspiration, highlighting all that goes into managing our national parks and building a sense of appreciation for the invaluable beauty, diversity, and history of our protected lands. Life is too short to eat boring granola. Granarly, the world's one and only whiskey granola, fills that void. When I was a student at the University of Texas, I worked with Granarly, a granola company based in Austin, falling in love with both the granola and the mission. Go to granarly.com with code WRTP15 to get 15% off to fuel your next adventure. See show notes for more details. Today, we have Sue Fritzke with us, the Capitol Reef National Park Superintendent. Capitol Reef, located in south-central Utah, is known as a hidden treasure filled with cliffs, canyons, and bridges in the water pocket fold, a geologic monocline extending almost 100 miles. Sue has been superintendent at Capitol Reef since 2018, after serving different roles across a plethora of California national and state parks and has introduced amazing partnerships with various organizations. Today, we have the privilege of learning Sue's story and getting a glimpse into her heart for our national parks. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, I'm excited. Yeah, let's jump in. Um, I guess, stepping back, I'd love to kind of hear about what your experience as a child was like in nature. Was this, has this always been a love of yours? Is it something you grew into? Um, I, my family moved to California when I was about six months old, and they decided to start sleuthing around and learning California and learning, um, you know, sort of what the resources were there. And so we started doing hiking when I was very little um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then eventually they discovered Yosemite National Park. And so that was pretty much where we spent uh, most of our summer vacations. When my dad had vacation time, we would go up to Yosemite and, uh, you know, really developed a love for just hiking around in the back areas behind our house um, in the Bay Area and then uh, in the mountains in the Sierra Nevada. That's awesome. Um, Did you, I mean, was hiking kind of what you spent your most time doing? Did you do some camping or like, did you enter into backpacking, stuff like that? So, yeah, we did a lot of um, camping and then hiking, which I actually hated. I hated hiking when I was a little kid because I was the youngest child in my family Yeah, and I was the only girl. And so my legs were shorter. I was smaller and um, it was really kind of depressing because I was always the person leading, 
leading up the rear of the family. And, uh, you know, that was kind of, I, I really just detested that. Um, and so I never thought that I would get into hiking and all those kinds of things. And, uh, but then later on in life, as I got more active with Girl Scouts, um, very active with Girl Scouts all the way through high school, oh, cool. and um, really started to realize that all of those things that I had learned, hiking with my family and spending time in these wonderful outdoor areas, gave me knowledge about what the plants were, what the rocks were, how the water worked, all those different kinds of things. And, and um, I was able to share that with other people. And so it just made the hiking less detestable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you find other things to appreciate. And then um, maybe that reduces the pain of trying to catch up to exactly. the rest of your family. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So then I guess, well, one, growing up in the Bay Area, it's a beautiful part of the country. Um, and can really be like such a good learning ground. And also probably, I mean, probably anywhere within the U S can be such a good learning ground. Um, but that's really special. Did you, yeah. I guess, what led to your decision to then study environmental studies and physical geography, um, at USBC is what, or UCSB is what I found yeah, you know, the internet. Yeah. So um, I actually decided when I was about eight years old that I wanted to be a park ranger. Um, so kind of early. Wow. Even amidst not liking hiking? Well, yeah, it had to do with the interactions that my family had with the park rangers in Yosemite. And we would go on these backcountry um, trips into newly established wilderness in Yosemite National Park. And there was one ranger in particular that I just was enthralled with. His name was Carl Sharsmith, um, Dr. Carl Sharsmith. He, he was actually a botany professor at, um, at San Jose State University. Um, but he, in the summers, in his summers educating people about plants and nature and things like that. And so he would come out and just to hang out with the kids. We'd get down on the ground in these high alpine areas and look at these little plants that were like a quarter of an inch high. And, um, and, and he would explain all of these things in nature that we were seeing. And I thought, you know, that is what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's really cool. Yeah. So when I went to UC Santa Barbara, um, I sort of was on that trajectory-ish, um, but I really wanted to study biology and I didn't do well so well grade-wise. And so I started going into environmental studies, nice. physical geography, um, and just started to add on classes. So I started okay. adding on botany and started adding on geology and wildlife management and all these different things that have led to my success in the National Park Service. Nice. Um, I think at that point, I had kind of forgotten that that's sort of what I wanted to do right. was work for the Park Service. But, um, you know, I was just studying. So. Yeah. So I guess I have an idea or a sense of maybe what environmental studies contains, but I guess is what is physical geography? What does that entail? Yeah, so there's two kinds of geography. There's social geography, which is sort of maps, like, uh, you know, who, what city lies in what area of the oh, country. Interesting. Physical geography is really understanding the interrelationship of different um, physical dynamics. So how water changes, um, how rocks appear, 
um, how water interacts with plants, how plants interact with soils and geology. Okay. And so it's understanding all these other sciences and how they integrate with each other, um, which uh, is sort of what the Park Service does, says it turns cool. out. So yeah. it's really nice. Yeah. yeah, it's fun when what you study actually leads into what you do work-wise. It doesn't always happen. So it's nice when right. that goes towards that. And I guess... Yeah. Did you go to UCSB? And again, I'm not from California, so I have to practice my different acronyms. Were they specifically known for their environmental studies, physical geography programs? Yeah, they were. Um, that program really started in the 1960s. And by the time I got there in the 80s, um, you know, it was a well-established program. Um, and really uh, leading to people going into basically different kinds of environmental careers really cool. That's awesome. And kind of taking a step back to, um, so I missed the name of the park ranger at Yosemite. Did you say Carl? Carl. Sure. Okay. So was, was Carl, I'm assuming he was a park ranger. Yes. And did you see him consecutive summers or was it kind of a, oh, that's really special? Yeah. 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 It was really neat. We would run into him seemed like every year he made an effort to join up with my family. My family led Sierra Club trips. And oh, so cool. um, and so he would make sure that he joined up with that group and then interacted with us for a day or two. Um, okay. And then he would just go traipsing off into the mountains. And uh, I thought, wow, that is a cool job. Yeah, you're like, hmm. Yeah. I'm intrigued by that. Yeah. Um, very cool. So while you're at UCSB, did you, you said you kind of got caught up in your studies, which, you know, a very good studious student of you to do so. Um, as you were starting to, you know, look towards graduation, did those ideas and dreams for becoming a park ranger come back or what did kind of that transition to the working world look like? I completely panicked and had no plan whatsoever. So I joined the Peace Corps. Oh, nice. And, and that is absolutely what happened to me. I realized I'm graduating. I don't have a job. I don't know. I don't know how to move to that next step. And so I think I'll delay it by joining the Peace Corps. Um, and I did that for two and a half years. Cool. Where were you? I don't know if stationed is the correct term. It is. Um, I, I was assigned to a location in the Andes of Ecuador in South America. Um, as it turned out, while I was in training, I was supposed to be a forestry volunteer and I was supposed to be planting non-native trees for production of firewood. Um, and I had a problem with the idea of planting non-native trees in the Andes. And at the same time, I was very fortunate because a representative of the Ecuadorian National Park Service came into the Peace Corps office and said, hey, we would like to develop a future collaboration between the Ecuadorian National Park Service and the Peace Corps um, and you know, talk about future having volunteers um, working in some of our national parks. And my program manager said, I think I have the right person for you right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you're... Spidey sense kind of is like, oh, wait, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess we'll jump back into the Peace Corps stuff. But quick tidbit is my uncle did the Peace Corps a while back. So I, that's, I have very, very 
very limited exposure to what it is. <laughs> and that's essentially the extent. So it sounds like the Ecuadorian government, or I guess more so the Ecuadorian National Park, wanted to do a partnership with the Peace Corps. And your program director kind of had seen something in you and actually recommended you forward. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I got assigned to an ecological reserve that goes from 10,000 to 17,000 feet in elevation, at least the area that I worked in. Um, wow. So it was way high in the Andes. And then um, my job was to basically identify everything that was inside um, wow. that reserve. Um, literally, this had been an area on a map of Ecuador um, that the World Wildlife Fund had come in and basically drawn circles and said, these are areas that you, ought, you Ecuadorian government, should preserve because they are very unique biologically and geologically. And uh, But they didn't really know what was inside of them. And if they okay. didn't know what was inside of them, then they didn't know how to manage so um that's really cool yeah yeah the I spent some time in Peru and I remember what was so crazy about it and I'm curious if this kind of equivalates to part of your experience but you know a 15,000 foot mountain in Colorado is going to be tree line like you know no trees covered in snow all year round and there it's like a rainforest almost, or, right. you know, I don't know right. the proper microclimate, but I thought I was amazed by that. Yeah. Yeah. We had cloud forests that went up to about 12, 13,000 feet. Really and cool. uh, yeah, it was just, it was amazing. So, so was that, did that kind of fall into your time in the Peace Corps? Or did that actually extend past your stint there? I did that the whole time I was there. And then um, the last month or two I actually extended so that I okay. could then work in other high elevation um, parks in the country it's interesting Ecuador is right on the equator that's the name of the country um, and most people when they go to Ecuador they like to concentrate on the biological diversity of the tropical rainforest okay and so at that time the last person who had actually done any kind of real specific natural history studies prior to my arrival um, in that particular part of the country was Alexander von Humboldt 150 years before I got there. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was just, it was just interesting because there was so much that was there that he had discovered. And then 150 years later, I'm following up with, you know, well, this is what it looks like now. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you feel like you were learning via like fire hose of just oh. kind of trying to figure out how to identify yeah. different species and yeah, I mean, you know, I'm fresh out of college, yeah. taken all these botany classes, had a minor in botany, you know, really thought I was really good at everything. And then I get there and it's like, uh, these are plant families I haven't even ever heard of, much less, I, I don't even know what's yeah. in them. Um, you know, seeing trees at 14,000, 15,000 feet that have flowers that look like daisies. I mean, it was weird yeah. um, because it just took even the plant families that I knew and that I was familiar with, it, it, it showed me um, the diversity of those plant families and that, that you know, I, I was thinking everything fit into these nice, neat little boxes and it doesn't. 
Yeah. Her, her life continues to show you that that's usually not the case. Yeah. yeah. So were botany classes learning different? Is it like biology, but make it about plants, plants. and stuff? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah. then that when I was doing some research in preparation for the, our conversation, a couple articles mentioned that you used to teach gardening classes at, I think, a local right. university. So is this where this love and knowledge started or was it maybe more confirming and you already have had that interest when you were in school? My mom was a real fanatic amateur botanist and gardener. And so I think I just picked up a lot of that interest from her. Yeah. We would always hike along and then she would, you know, point out something and then we would sort of look at why is this plant different from this other one? You know, what are its unique characteristics? And so it was always sort of investigating this stuff. Yeah, just kind of exploring uh, with the curiosity. So, you know, obviously you're working for the National Park Service right now. So at some point you moved back to the U.S. Um, (laughs) What was that transition like? Was it a similar like, oh, my time's up. Maybe I should just go back. I was kind of done with um, with being in South America. It was sort of um, you know, a lot of things that are just really always um, a, a struggle in yeah. terms of you're in a different culture. Yeah. My hair, which is still long, but it actually turned blonde while I was there. Really? Um, and because I was high elevation and then taking some medicines that um, just sort of bleach your hair out. And um, being blonde and five foot six in a country where most men are five foot six. Um, was not good in my 20s and it just led to a lot of really uncomfortable situations so I really was just kind of ready to come back to the U.S. Um, When I came back though it was very hard um, because you're coming back after two and a half years of experience in another country becoming fluent in a different language and culture and you know people would say oh you were in the Peace Corps how was that and you had to sort of decide Do I give them the one-minute version, the five-minute version, or the 10-minute version? Because that's about all anybody would give you. And their response to that was usually something like that. Oh, well, we just bought a new car. (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking, ah, you know. So it it was really difficult um, even learning how to speak the language again, uh, how to to speak English again. Catching up with the new terms, you know, two and a half years. Right. right. One of the really scary things, um, you know, we've had these connection issues trying to get this interview set up was computers. Um, when I left for the Peace wow. Corps, computers were mainframe computers with punch cards. When I came back, it was the very initial beginnings of personal computers. So it was really hard. Yeah, that's really disorienting. And also you've spent the past like two and a half years also, it sounds like kind of in the mountains exploring and then adjusting back maybe what you were used to before. Yeah, I imagine that was a hard transition. After coming back to the US, did you go straight into the National Park Service or? I I didn't have a job when I came back and I was sort of um, trying to figure out, okay, what are my next steps? I obviously need to get a job. My parents do not want me to live at their house now that they've been empty nesters for two and a half years. And then I very fortuitously got a letter that was sent to my parents' address that was from UC Santa Barbara celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Environmental Studies Program. And so I figured out how to drive a car again. Yeah. And I relearned English. We learned yes, how to drive. Exactly. Oh, and how to how to use a bank. Yeah, that was oh, a concept. Good, yeah. Um, and uh, so I drove down to UCSB and um, 
and spent three or four days there. And there happened to be a person there who'd been in the program a couple of years before me. And she worked for Yosemite National Park. And I didn't, I didn't run into her. I didn't get to know her or anything. But um, sort of at the end of this, this get together, this 30 year celebration of the program, um, I went into my old uh, career advisor um, in the environmental studies program and said, you know, I just got back from the Peace Corps and I'm looking at, um, you know, future opportunities. And he looked at me and he said, did you get to talk to this person that works in Yosemite? Because she's trying to hire somebody right now, somebody apparently pulled out of the job and she's really kind of desperately trying to fill a gap and uh, and I said no and he said well let me get you on the phone with her and I'm thinking I've just come back from a country where you have to set up a time slot to allow a phone call to the United States a week in advance wow. to get that scheduled. They and didn't all have of a sudden, FaceTime then. No. <laughs> and here he is calling up this person. She gets on the phone and she said, well, hey, you know, do you know Yosemite? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I spent most yes. of my summers there. <laughs> and she said, well, let me just ask you a few questions about, you know, if you were working in Yosemite Valley and somebody asked you how to get from here to there or what this trail would be like, because she wanted to know, did I really know you? somebody right. that well and um, so I was able to ask these questions and she said I'd like you to send in a resume and um, so I sent in a resume they wow. did an interview like three weeks later I was hired wow so, and what role specifically <laughs> were you hired for I was hired as a, a park ranger GS4 um, seasonal interpreter okay. working in Yosemite Valley okay wow yeah. the timing is really special of that of just oh, how it was it, amazing yeah it was amazing and it's cool <laughs> that it was like the park that you grew up going to you know totally what there's yeah. 60 plus parks and it just happened to be Yosemite so that's really cool so I guess if you were a seasonal worker did you does that mean you like spend the summers there I imagine that's more so the high season yeah and I am um, I I worked I got hired in May of 1985 and then I worked through December I think of 1985 so okay. um, seasonal positions now are much more limited in the time period okay. that you can work but at that time they they could have actually worked me year-round if they'd had the money to do it okay got it so, yeah I guess yeah. it's kind of dependent on they can staff as many people as like the visitors that they're having and bringing in revenue maybe right right that's cool so yeah. how like I guess well Going back to that moment, you know, you said when you were eight years old, you wanted to be a park ranger. When you entered into being a park ranger at Yosemite, was that confirming? Were you kind of thinking forward of like, yes, I want to stay in this? Or was it more just enjoying that time? I I really enjoyed it. It was, there were just amazing experiences that, that I had and that, that whole ability to take information that you have and observations that you're making right. and turn that into something that people can understand. You know, so talking about geology and right. talking about how um, half dome formed and, uh, you know, talking about glaciation and talking about all of these really very, very complex scientific concepts and, and getting them down to the point where uh, an eight-year-old kid yeah. can understand it. You know, somebody that was like me. Yeah. You know, it's not where you need a, before. you know, right. a yeah, bachelor's a to right. like, comprehend. Right. And, uh, and that was just, it was really exciting to sort of see that spark that you would get from people where they would just yeah. all of a sudden understand something or walk away going, oh, 
wow. And, um, and I really love that. It was fun. Yeah, that's and awesome. I ended up doing that for two years um, okay. or two seasons. And at then at the end of the second season, I realized I, a lot of what we did was worked in the visitor center. And a lot of what we did was told people where the bathroom was. Yeah, <laughs> You'll hear that a lot from people that work in that particular field is yeah. that they are answering the same question over and over and over again. And I'm sure I've I, been one of those people to ask that question. <laughs> well, and you know, you always try to remind yourself that for that person, they're asking that question for the first time. Yeah. So even if you've heard it 80 times that day, it's really okay because for them, it's the first time. Yeah. And you have to always remind yourself of that. But it was frustrating because yeah. there were things that I felt like I really wanted to help people understand in terms of what they were seeing. And so much of the time that I was spending was explaining, where's the bathroom? Where do I get food? you know um you know is there any camping spaces available all of these things that people should have known but they didn't and i realized that even though at eight years old this is what i thought i wanted to do i didn't yeah and that was hard yeah, yeah. that well especially i mean candidly i don't remember what i wanted to be at eight years old so I can't even kind of think of like, you know, I think I was like, a, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be, you know, like maybe what other yeah. eight-year-olds were saying. But yeah, it's probably a yeah. moment of also maturity of like, okay, like, cool. Just because I wanted to be this doesn't mean I got to experience this and now I can kind of think what's next. Yeah. And that's, that's how I ended up deciding to go into grad school. Okay, cool. Um, that, that was and, my next question. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice I segue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had wanted to go to Oregon State University with my undergraduate, but it was out of state and I couldn't afford yeah. out of state tuition. Um, I applied to Oregon State um, to, uh, and again, went back into physical geography program and really just sort of wanted to hone my skills and get more into the science of things and, cool. and really sort of understanding that interrelationship of all the, these different biological and physical features and how they work with each other on a yeah, but that was a very, I'm really glad I did that. Uh, How long I was that it, program? I ended up taking the seven-year plan. Um, Love that. <laughs> partly because I got married, then I got divorced. Let's see, I broke my back in the middle of all of that. Some life things yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, life happens, yeah. you know. And so, you know, what would have been maybe a two to three-year program ended up taking me seven years um, to actually finish up. Hey, but you did it. I did. And did yeah. you, again, was it you had originally wanted to go to Oregon State because of kind of the name brand it had within the environmental science, physical geography realm? Mm -hmm. So again, were you you know, you're getting to that graduation point. Are you thinking you want to go back into the National Park Service or? Well, so so what was happening is that every year I would go to Oregon State, I would take classes for six months of the year. Okay. The other six months of the year, I worked for the Park Service. Um, oh, nice. As a, as a seasonal. And so. At um, Yosemite or? Um, and so I went and I worked up in Mount Rainier um, okay. first summer. I actually, that is where I did my master's um, research was up at Mount Rainier. So Mount Rainier hired me as a seasonal uh, within the resources management division. Okay. And I did some evaluations of visitor impacts on soils and vegetation in subalpine and alpine areas of wow. um, one particular area of that park. And okay. sort of helped the park reprioritize what it was doing in terms of overall restoration work that they were doing. 
I mean, yeah. that's something that's, and we might get into this in a bit, but I think as I've heard in general and just kind of seen is it parks are seeing an increase in visitors, which I think is a beautiful and wonderful thing, but it then does kind of present this paradox of how do you preserve, restore, but then enable people to see. And then, you know, there's Half Dome has the permit, I guess it has for a while, kind of right. these different systems to try and manage that, but then also like have them straight stay true to their nature of making them available to the public. Yeah. So yeah. cool that you got that exposure. It sounds like relatively early on yeah. of kind of evaluating the human factor on geography. So I guess you did Mount Rainier. Did you do any other national parks? Yeah. And then I, um, and then I came back to Yosemite and um, went into, I went into fire management after Mount Rainier and I went into basically worked in prescribed fire. And I started that in 1988. That was the year of the Yellowstone fires. And so the next year we were under a complete moratorium for doing prescribed fire until the park service reevaluated the entire fire program um, across the country. And uh, so I worked in suppression um, for a year and uh, flew helicopters all over the place and put fires out. And then the next year went back into prescribed burning and reintroduced fire into giant sequoia groves um, down in the southern part of the park. So prescribed uh, fire, to make sure I understand, prescribed fire is essentially when you're intentionally creating a fire to, you know, like, because I think it's good and natural for forests and stuff to Mm -hmm. kind of refresh and restart but then right i guess in terms of the 1988 yosemite fire was that essentially a prescribed fire that got out of control no the yellowstone fires were really oh yellowstone uh, yeah you know drought conditions um uh, you know those fires as it turns out were really part of um what that particular ecosystem does Uh, naturally they have these big massive what humans call catastrophic fires but in fact they're not um for the ecosystem and but it you know i mean it really made people think about how how do we do fire management okay and, uh, i see and luckily af- after all of that and after all of that evaluation um it really confirmed the need to continue doing prescribed right. burning okay prescribed burning is known as prescribed fire because it is fire that's introduced into a system under a very specific set of prescribed parameters. So the temperature's got to be this, the wind has got to be this, the relative humidity's got to be this, the moisture and the fuel has got to be a certain amount um, so that human beings can control it and can, you know, make it do what we want it to do to help out an ecosystem. Okay, very cool. Yeah, and it was really cool because we... um, we did reintroduce fire into giant sequoia groves, and giant sequoias are trees that are absolutely dependent on fire. Interesting. And um, they will not regenerate or very rarely regenerate without fire. Fire clears out all of the duff on the forest floor and um, allows these little tiny seeds that are about a third the size of a piece of oatmeal um, to hit the mineral soil. And then you see just thousands and millions of seedlings coming wow. up as a result of that. And so we're in- introducing fire into giant sequoia groves that hadn't seen fire in over 110 years and uh, had no young giant sequoias wow. um, in those groves. And that was quite a privilege. So then <laughs> when you're introducing 
fire into that are those giant sequoias like i guess do they i don't know if the right term is like die but do they or they sustain the fire they they have um, extremely fire resistant bark that's very very thick that helps protect them from the heat of a fire and um you know so you're just sort of putting fire into the system and getting that bare mineral soil reestablished. Yeah, that's and it's I mean, it's just cool to see, you know, I don't think there's many people who would be like, oh, what a privilege and an honor to kind of be reintroducing those seedlings like that just shows kind of the care for that, you know, like, it's good to see that and be like, yeah, Yeah. like, that's awesome that I don't know, it's just cool to see the care for creating a healthy ecosystem within a place and then getting to have that type of impact the sequoia groves. So as you know, you're kind of bouncing around these different national parks, how does Like once you're working within the national parks, is it difficult to switch between them? Or is it very common that people do seasonal stints at different locations? That's pretty common. And then, um, you know, in a lot of the larger parks, so Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Rocky, et cetera, um, there are enough employees that if you have the skill set that you're able to jump from one program to another you can often do that within the same park oh um, i see which is what i really ended up doing so i went from interpretation to fire right and then i eventually ended up at over in resources management okay so, so three different programs so then through yeah. was the resource management i guess was that at mount rainier or was that i did that at mount rainier and then i did it longer term in yosemite okay and were you doing the resource management at yosemite while still doing the masters or was that kind of post masters no that was while i was still okay finishing up the mask. I would imagine. That's a long time. But but you're also getting experience, you know, and so it's it right. makes sense. I would I wonder if that's or I guess is that did you see that among a lot of students that they were kind of splitting their time between maybe working seasonally and then coming back? Yeah, not a lot. Um I I was a, one of a group of a, a number of grad students within the program that were older. Okay. You know, we were in our 30s. Um, you know, most of the grad students are in their 20s. They've just come out of their bachelor's right. degree. They've gone right on to a master's and then on to a PhD. Right. And, um, you know, and we had practical on the ground knowledge. And so I remember one time one of my professors was talking about this new way of doing monitoring and he had this whole, you know, thing set up. And I looked at him and I said, this is not going to work because this isn't, this isn't based in the reality of being in the field. Yeah. And I said, this is a very nice controlled experiment and that's lovely, but you know what, this isn't, this has no applicability in the field. Yeah. And uh, he kind of looked at me like I had the affront How dare you? actually say something like that to him. But it's like, dude, I've been in the field. Yeah. I've been doing studies. I've been doing research and I know what works and I also know what doesn't yeah. and um, you had to say it with a little finesse right so of course they didn't you know kick you out right of course, exactly you're so. like and with the yeah. kindest regards you are wrong <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> so you know your big graduation day comes up are you at this point pretty set and staying in the National Park Service or? Yeah, I was pretty much, um, you know, in, in the system, um, still, still seasonal, okay. though, and um, which was a little hard. So I went into resources management in Yosemite. I got involved with the ecological restoration and vegetation management programs oh. there and sort of, you know, worked 
a number of very long years, actually, at that time, you could work year round, but not be permanent. Um, oh, interesting. And, and then I finally kind of got to the point of realizing I'm never going to get permanent in Yosemite National yeah. Park. It's just they didn't have the money. They didn't have the ability to do it. And I needed to, um, if I wanted to make a, a permanent career um, in this agency, I needed to move. Yeah. And so I applied for a number of positions and I got a job at Redwood National Park up in Northern California and basically dealing with invasive species management oh, cool. in the Redwood, Redwood ecosystem. And uh, did that for two years. And that's how kind of how I started my permanent career. Nice. So invasive species management is, I guess, were you doing a lot of studies to then kind of see what's there or more predictive, like, oh, this might enter, so we should protect against this? There was a combination of doing studies to try to figure out what right. actually worked to control species, um, because sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's really, really hard. And then I would say that my time was split um, about half between doing those studies and then documenting all of that work and then actually physically oh, going wow. out and actually yeah. removing stuff. And so, you know, taking what's called a weed wrench, which is just this giant piece of metal um, that has a clamp on the end of it and oh, pulling out gosh. acres of scotch broom, which is this horrible, horrible, horrible right. plant. Beautiful in yeah. Scotland, um, doesn't belong in the United States and um, was taking over prairies, prairies support elk um, and other wildlife. If you have oh, scotch broom in there, the elk don't, aren't there, you know? So again, it's that whole yeah. trying to restore ecosystems back to a way that works. So that these other species that are dependent on those ecosystems can be there. Partner with, I'm curious how, and this kind of applies to probably most of the national parks, but like, is it like you pull out those invasive species, but then the line of the national park ends and then you don't do work beyond that? Or how do you kind of make sure that rather than just like putting a bandaid over it, do you partner with people or I'm, yeah, I'm curious about that. That's, that really has to be a lot of, um, I think what national parks have to do right. is try to reach out and right. communicate with your neighbors, um, whether that's private property owners or other public land management agencies, state parks, Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, whoever that might be, to just sort of yeah. say, hey, this is something that we're concerned about. You share the same ecosystem. Those ecosystems, you know, the, these, you know, redwood forests, redwood trees don't right. just end at one boundary. You know, you, these things cross boundaries. Nature doesn't pay attention to our <laughs> political boundaries. And so we really need to be looking at this a lot more holistically than just where the boundary line ends. That was that was a great experience. So Indiana Dunes National Park has a partner national park because it's where the like birds migrate to and from. I forget what national park it is, but it's right. in a different country. And so that part was fascinating too. And again, it's like you said, nature does not abide by our political boundaries. That's a, you know, it's a great little tidbit. Yeah. That's fun. So then what was it like kind of continuing within the National Park Service? And as you, yeah, like you said, continued your permanent career, permanent yeah. full-time career within the service. Yeah. So I did two years up at Redwood and that was a great experience, you know, just because it's a very different ecosystem there yeah. than other parts of the state of California. And and then I got a job as a vegetation ecologist at Yosemite. And so I went okay. back to Yosemite again. <laughs> Were you looking to go back to Yosemite? Or? Not, not, I mean, kind of, um, because I really loved it. 
you know, but, um, but I also had a great job and great opportunities at Redwood, but, um, yeah. you know, but eventually, you know, decided that would be a good move and it was a career move. Um, definitely a pay, pay scale up and, nice. and more responsibility and, you know, going back to a place that I really loved. Yeah, that's awesome. And then were you, because I know at some point you ended up back in San Francisco mm-hmm. managing, I think it's four different areas. Was that right after Yosemite or? Well, <laughs> it's way more complicated. Um, so I so I worked in Yosemite as a vegetation ecologist. Then I was promoted to um, basically run the, supervise the ecological restoration and vegetation programs in the park. And I worked in that capacity between those two kinds of jobs um, until uh, 2003. So that would have been like seven years um, that I was there. And then I moved to Golden Gate National Recreation Area in San Francisco um, and and took over their vegetation management program. And, you know, it it was really very interesting because people sort of looked at me like, you're coming from this big, giant natural park. Yosemite, you've been at Mount Rainier, you've been at at Redwood, and then all of a sudden you're going to Golden Gate in the middle of San Francisco, which seemed really weird. Um, Right. But... Goldgate's just this amazing juxtaposition of really complex human ecology and natural ecology. Golden Gate National Recreation Area has the third highest number of listed federally endangered or threatened species in the National Park Service. The only two parks that have a higher number are both in Hawaii. And, And a lot of that has to do with urbanization in the Bay right. Area, that there right. are these little tiny remnant areas that have these these just tiny populations of species that used to be much more widespread. Um, yeah. And now they're limited to just little pockets. And But it was also a great experience to, again, be able to apply that, how do you manage systems, you know, natural systems with this human overlay. And, yeah. and at Golden Gate, the thing that was really intriguing was it was not only natural system with current human overlay, but prehistoric human overlay, very historic. Mm. So Spanish era, you know, establishment of populations um, that were coming from Europe. And so all these different intricacies of these different layers of human history sitting on top of these amazing layers of vegetation and geology in the Murray Headlands and, you know, throughout Golden Gate that was just, was amazing. The incoming, you have the incoming Silicon Valley boom to that area. So future, future impact also. Did you find that your funding, I guess, it probably changes park to park, but did you have more resources when you were at Golden Gate or just because of its proximity to so much like urbanization or? Uh, it's somewhat, I mean, you know, the budget for each park is sort of this mystery and how those budgets get established and how they get maintained. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I've been with the Park Service 38 years and I still don't quite get it and I still fight it uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes. But um, but I, I think also in the Bay Area, there's a lot more, there were, you know, much higher population size, uh, much yeah. more ability to have philanthropic organizations and partner organizations getting money that they do- donated to the park so that the park could do the work that it needed to do. and uh, And that was wonderful. So then did you, 
How long were you in that position? I was in that position for eight years. And then I moved on from there to the East San Francisco Bay Area. And nice. this, this was a real jump for me because I go okay. from being a resources manager, basically. Right. And then I became a deputy superintendent. And I became okay. a deputy superintendent in four national parks or national park sites that right. are history. Okay. What does deputy mean? Deputy superintendent means there's a superintendent. And then I'm a person that works directly for that person. Oh, I see. Um, okay. And in most parks that have a superintendent and a deputy, the superintendent deals with all the political stuff and all of the, right. the stuff that goes on outside the park. The deputy deals with all of the internal operations. In my case, the superintendent knew what my skill set was. We've known each other for years. And he said, tell you what, we're, we're basically going to just work together as a team awesome. to make these four parks function. Each of the parks right. was about 20 to 30 miles separated from each other. They lived, They were in different communities. They had different partners. They had yeah. very, very different um, demographics in terms of the populations living around them. And so yeah, extremely complex job um, yeah. that not one person could actually do well. And uh, so I had the privilege of being able to learn how to do all of that. Candidly, that's my heart with this podcast is like highlighting all these complexities in a way just to like, again, increase appreciation of like, this is all that goes in to maintain and sustain the national parks for future generations for, yeah, like keep them healthy, sustained, all of that. So yeah. it's yeah. cool to learn more about all those yeah. Yeah, intricate moments. Yeah. Well, and just it was really an honor also, I think, in all of those parks to understand what that history was. That's, that's yeah. something I think I've learned in the National Park Service and then just traveling around the country of, right. you know, discovering, hey, that's a national park site. We should go there. Um, yeah. they might, there might be something interesting there and thinking, I'm going to walk into this place. It's not going to be interesting at all. I'll leave in 20 minutes and then right. get sucked into whatever the story is. And, yeah. and that was the same thing with those, those sites in the East Bay is you're dealing with Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial. Up until 1945, um, the largest human-caused explosion happened at Port Chicago, led to the loss of human life, um, led to the identification of the segregation of the military, and led eventually to the desegregation of the military as a direct result of that particular incident at Port Chicago. Wow. So who knew? And, you know? Yeah, um, I didn't. Rosie the Riveter, World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Wow. Uh, we were still dealing with Rosie's and there are still Rosies now that worked during World War II that helped with that war effort. And um, so working with these women who um, sort of broke through some of that stereotype yeah. of, of um, you know, what a woman is capable of and what a woman isn't capable of. Right. And, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, being able to have those conversations with these people is just amazing. That's special to like, you know, you kind of entered this world for the passion of, like the physical geography, the botany, all these things. And then you get to like learn these people's stories and yeah. the historical aspects of it. I think, I mean, both are so beautiful. I think the natural aspects of a lot of the parks get a lot of attention and highlights. And then, yeah, it's really special to also highlight the like human stories behind all of them. So then we are interviewing superintendents. <laughs> Did you then transition to Capitol Reef or how did that transition happen? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I, you know, I had been a deputy superintendent. I ended up doing that job for 
seven years. And and when you're a deputy, um, you're not you're not the ultimate right. person right. in charge. There's always somebody um, directly above you. Got to get sign off from someone. Yeah. And um, and so at some point, I thought, you know, I gotta just try this. Right. And so I got it. I applied for and got a detail at Bryce Canyon okay. National Park in Utah. And I did that detail for four months. And in that four month period, I kind of affirmed to myself that. Yes, I actually am capable of being a superintendent yeah. because you always have that doubt oh, of um, course. in your mind of, am I capable of doing this? Am I going to like it? Yeah. Is this going to be what this park needs? And, you know, so that was really my affirmation that, yeah, I, I can actually do this job. And it was what? So it was a detail? Was nice. it, like, does that, is that like a, you're filling in for someone while they're out? Correct. So the, the former superintendent had retired okay. and they were announcing for a new superintendent superintendent. And so they needed somebody to fill the gap. Okay. You know, that got you to Utah. Is that kind of then what got you the experience and exposure? Yeah. So, so I, um, did that. And then I went back to the four parks in the East San Francisco Bay area. And then, uh, about a year later, eight months later, um, I got the job at Capital Reef. Yeah. You had that little like inkling in your chest. You're like, okay, I know I can do this. I know this is what I want to do. And yeah. then yeah, here we are. Yeah, and 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 it was interesting because when I was at Bryce, I really never spent much time in in Utah. And when I was at Bryce, I thought this is a really fascinating place. There's amazing resources in the state hmm. that I know nothing about. Right. And I think the thing that was the most intriguing to me, to be honest with you, is that I had spent so much of my lifetime up and down the west coast of the United States, going to a place where. I didn't understand the ecology. I didn't understand the geology. I couldn't just walk out my door and go, oh, I know what everything is here. It was was like, it just opened up my opportunity to learn again. And uh, that was- Yeah, it's very so, different. Yeah. Even from like kind of a novice perspective, you know, you can kind of look at Yosemite versus many of the Utah national parks and be like, yeah, objectively, these are very different ecosystems, environments, yeah. probably different animals, all of those things. And how is that- stepping into that superintendency role? Well, you know, one of, one of the things that you were sort of wondering about was, did I always want to be a superintendent? And the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> um, that was never my aspiration. Right. Um, never something that I thought that I even wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you get more experience, as you see more superintendents and how they do things, and you're always thinking, I like that, but I didn't like that. Um, right. And so uh, coming to Capitol Reef was really interesting to me. The first staff meeting I had, I was like almost shaking because I was so nervous because all of a sudden you realize you're the person in charge. Yeah. You're like, you know, oh wait, everyone's listening person. to me. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you are the person that ultimately has the decision um, yeah. and you can make that decision and then you have to work with it. Yeah. And you can talk to everybody that you want to about it and get all the advice that you want to, right. but ultimately you're the one that has to make it. And, yeah. uh, and that's really kind of frightening. Yeah. yeah. Frightening, but then also empowering at the same time of, but yeah, it's, you can't be in the meeting like, and I'm going to defer this to yeah. so-and-so. Exactly. exactly. And what, you know, as we wrap up our time and kind of talk a little bit more about Capitol Reef, what coming into the park, what was something that I guess one surprised you about the park itself and then two about being superintendent. I mean, you had this experience as being a deputy superintendent, so I'm sure you saw a lot that went on. But, um, you know, being the main decision maker, 
What was something that surprised you? I think how much you have to really pay attention to what's going on outside of the park. Yeah. And then, but then also having to pay attention to what's going on inside the park. It's that, it's that whole balance of keeping your staff going, keeping them inspired, making them feel supported. Right. And at at the same time, making sure that you're talking to the external partners, to the external political entities, you know, making sure that they may not like what it is that you're doing or may not like what your agency um, right. is, is, you know, <laughs> mandated to do. But yeah. at the same time, you're listening to them and you're acknowledging their concerns and you're trying to figure out ways to make things work as best they can yeah. based on your agency's limitations and restrictions. <laughs> you mean you don't have unlimited no. resources and... <laughs> <laughs> funds and all these things. No. Yeah. I think, and there's what I liked what you said earlier was kind of when you were at Bryce Canyon coming and seeing this whole, you know, like you said, you'd been like primarily or really exclusively on the West coast. And so like seeing this whole different ecosystem of partners and just the dynamics that, and it's, that's also something I don't think a lot of people think about with national parks is like, it is the national park, yes, but there's so much connection with different organizations, different nonprofits, different, I mean, state parks, anything, other national parks out in different countries. Like there's so much intricacy right. with every single park. So it's cool yeah. to kind of, like you said, come to Utah and be like, oh, okay, these are kind of like the partners and the resources that we have. And in that, are there, as I mean, you've had, you know, a good number of years as superintendent at Capitol Reef, are there partnerships you want to grow in your time there? Yeah, I think um, I think the collaboration that the park has with the adjacent federal land management agencies, so the Forest Service and the, and the Bureau of Land Management, and you know, collaborating within those three organizations, so that we're all working as best we can to right. sort of take up the take up the gap. So I, I remember having a conversation with those two entities uh, a few years ago and I basically said, we're not expanding our campground inside the park. Um, yeah. And so if there are expanded camping needs, campgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, they need to be accounted for outside the park. Right. So that can be private sector that can be you know local gateway communities that can be the bureau of land management and the forest service and i think that that was really the first time that they they'd ever heard that very clearly yeah that we're not doing anything we're not going to change things partly because our campground sits in the middle of a historic landscape and um we don't want to destroy any more of the orchards that were taken out to create the 71 sites that are already there. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, (laughs) we have a lot already. um, Yeah. You know, so it was just kind of one of those interesting, you know, seeing that there's a need, but realizing that we, the park cannot solve that need and that that need needs to be addressed elsewhere. And, and then sort of having those conversations of, you know, partnering with other groups to try to figure out how to make that actually happen. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of problem solving has to go on of like, okay, no, but maybe (laughs) yes, if X, Y, and Z and this and that, I guess kind of coming back to that question of what about Capitol Reef specifically surprised you when you became superintendent? I don't think I really understood how 
human beings have interacted with this very, very complex um, geologic area and, 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 you know, how intricate that relationship has been for thousands of years. And I think the thing that I really love about Capitol Reef is I see it as um, the integration of 19 very distinct geologic layers that tell millions of years of history, yeah. um, overlaying by thousands of years of human history of various groups of Native Americans that moved in, moved out, were here seasonally, were here permanently, and then overlay that with the Latter-day Saints pioneers that moved into the area and established the community of Fruta, uh, which oh, is now where the park headquarters is, um, established orchards and pasture systems. Like and apple orchards? Apple orchards. Really? Pears, peaches, and apricots. You name it, we've got it. Um, and, and they're all there. And so telling that story of the last 150 years right. of human history that's layered on thousands of layers of, you know, thousands of years of human history that's layered on top of millions, millions of years yeah. of geological history. So that's the thing that I think is just, it's it's that combination yeah. of all, all of that that is just, uh, you know, if you like geology, come here. Yeah. If you like botany, come here. If yeah. you like human history, come here. Yeah. You know, if you like... Um, pioneer history come here because it's all here just in different ways yeah that's awesome well that's a great way to kind of wrap things up again thank you so much sue for your time it was a pleasure to hear just like the intricacy and beautifulness of your story and the just different places you've explored and you know said yes to and put yourself out there so again thank you so much thank you it's been a real pleasure Thanks so much for listening today. Our music was composed by Danielle Bees. If you liked this podcast, rate, review, download, and tell your friends about it. This ensures the stories of our national parks and how they are run are shared. Listen to the other episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit us at whorunsthispark.com to learn more. I'm Maddie Pellman, and you've been listening to Who Runs This Park.